think we're going to start running out of office space downtown that we've had firms grow. We've had firms come just to locate here. They're here because of the fiber. This is episode 263 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Chris talks with two folks from Eugene, Oregon, where the community is working on a dark fiber project to improve connectivity to the downtown area. He's joined by Ann Fifield, who works in economic development, and Nick Nevins from the Eugene Water and Electric Board, also known as eWeb. In this conversation, we learn about the collaboration between the two entities, including how the infrastructure is already improving Eugene's downtown, how they're funding the project, and more about the decision to expand existing fiber in Eugene. Before we start the interview, we want to remind you that this commercial-free podcast isn't free to produce. Please take a moment to contribute at ILSR.org. If you're already contributing, thank you for playing a part and keeping our podcast going. Now here's Christopher with Ann Fifield and Nick Nevins from Eugene. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bids Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And today I'm talking with Ann Fifield, Economic Development Planner for the City of Eugene in Oregon. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Uh, we also have Nick Nevins on the line, and he is the engineering technician for Eugene Water and Electric Board. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited to learn more about what Eugene's doing and where what the results have been. Uh, but let's start off with just a little bit of a background on, on what Eugene is for people who haven't been out there on the West Coast. Uh, Anne, can you tell us a little bit about the city? So Eugene is in Western Oregon, about halfway between Portland to the north and the southern border of Oregon. We're about 160,000 people. One of the, the big notable things about our town is University of Oregon sits in Eugene, and that drives a lot of our local economy. And it's a pretty progressive place, um, as I remember it. Very, yes, very politically liberal, very much a blue part of Oregon. And, and Nick, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, you have an electric board there, and I, I guess I, some people might just assume um, a really progressive city, you would have just gone out and started building fiber a while ago. But um, the approach is somewhat different. So maybe you can just give us a, a very brief overview of what's going on with the electric board. Well, we did, we did start to build fiber back oh, in the early 2000s for our own use and lease out spare capacity mainly to public agencies. Um, Just in the last handful of years have we really reached out or branched out into the commercial market uh, leasing to ISPs. We just provide dark fiber. When you say we just provide dark fiber, um, I think we're going to be exploring that a bit because I think the the impact has been somewhat greater than than that might suggest. Um, But I think it's worth just going back to this decision. And and Anne, I'm curious if you can give us a sense, a little of the city's perspective in terms of the challenges Eugene is facing in terms of internet access. So we're a mid-sized city. We're not a large city. We're never going to attract a lot of competition unless we initiate it ourselves. If we're going to do it, we have to bootstrap it ourselves. Well, it's been a conversation for a very long time. There's been a lot of work, I'd say over 20 years, that has slowly built up to this. But we decided that it, we had a technical and a, and a political will locally to see if we could build a municipally owned fiber network. And, uh, and the idea was that, that eWeb, because they already owned this fiber that served themselves and they had a little bit of 
movement in that direction of leasing towards private ISPs, that we would build on that existing capacity to pilot a dark fiber network in the downtown of Eugene. And one reason we focused on downtown is there's a lot of software companies that have existed in Eugene. We have a very surprising number of video game developers in Eugene. So there was one company here, and when the big company pulled out, a lot of folks who lived here stayed, and there's a lot of startups here. We've got a lot of video game programmers. And if you look at the product that those guys make, when I was young, you had to go to Pizza Hut to play video games. And then people started getting consoles at home, and you would buy the game on a CD. And you don't do that anymore. My kids buy their games over our Internet connection. And it's not, and it's not just the video games. There's a lot of other software here they deliver their product over the internet. And one of the biggest barriers for those firms to grow was adequate internet access. And there's a lot of other markets that would be very happy to have those jobs. And we've had companies leave for other markets. And we've had a lot of those local companies really advocate for a better internet connection. And I think that's really sort of where that political will came from was local companies who wanted to stay in this town. It's a great place to live. But this was this huge barrier for them to access the global market with their product. And for people who may not be familiar, you have a lot of software development, a lot of open source in particular up north in Portland. And so it's not very surprising that you have a, a lot of this in, in Eugene as well. And uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned, Anne, that you have to, you often get the games delivered over the internet. Um, you know, I, I wonder if there's any games your children play that aren't <laughs> involved with the internet in terms of the actual gameplay as well. Uh, sometimes they play outside. <laughs> but no, it, it, it may not have an active connection, but that's how the product's been delivered to the houses over the internet. Nick, I'm I'm curious in terms of the the dark fiber leases. I mean, these kinds of big video game companies, they're ones that can use dark fiber. They they have no compunction about hiring uh, the kind of technicians that um, probably not unlike the the. Um, the um, background you have uh, to be able to manage a dark fiber connections. I'm curious if there's any other businesses in Eugene that are also really taking advantage of uh, dark fiber. Historically, we've, we've dealt more with the public sector, like Anne was saying, like the city, the county health school district is, is a big user of our dark fiber. Um, but getting more into the private sector, our projection or current path has actually been, leasing to ISPs so that um, those ISPs, smaller, more customer-focused ISPs can reach out to, uh, you know, get that last mile connection to businesses and buildings that they wouldn't be able to build to otherwise. Um, They just don't have the infrastructure around town, so they lease from us to get their product to various parts of town. And you, I think you were suggesting it's smaller ISPs, more regional, local ISPs, I'm guessing. Correct, yes. Right now, there's, there's so much support. I mean, we saw a Pew poll saying 7 out of 10 Americans um, are supportive of municipal networks. Uh, we see a lot of places where people are just saying, look, we just need to build a municipal network. I'm, I'm curious if you can give us a sense from utility point of view, you know, what are some of the challenges of getting involved with what you've done with the dark fiber that might be a little different from your traditional mission? Well, that, that's the thing is, uh, as a primarily electric and water company, fiber, it's not our, it's not our core business. So we started out using basically 
our our spare capacity, and that's kind of the the mindset of what we have now. You know, we we dabbled or explored the option of actually becoming an ISP ourselves, and realized you know there's people they're better. That's their core business, so they're just better suited for that. We're are the people and experience that we have is actually stringing the lines and putting in the infrastructure. That's the that's the knowledge base that we have in on hand. So we've decided to utilize that. Critics of municipal networks will often suggest that the utility and the city are inseparable, that, that they're basically one entity. Uh, I'm curious, uh, and, and I'm definitely open to hearing from both of you, um, how it actually is on the ground in terms of uh, the challenges of making sure that you're on the same page. We are not the same entity. We have two different elected boards, and we're not always on the same page, but we're important partners, and ultimately we're both serving the exact same community. You know, it's, it, there's always a political element to this, and, um, and we at the city, the city's bringing the funding to the project while EWEB is actually implementing the project. And so it took a, a big political push to, to make sure that we had the political will within the city. But then as we worked with EWEB, we have an intergovernmental agreement between the two of us over this project, and it was a lot of work to get to that agreement that satisfied both parties. It, it protects EWEB financially and ensures that the city's investment it continues to be implemented by eWeb. It's it seems it's sort of simple, but I think I think Nick it came down to a three page intergovernmental agreement, but it took months to get there. Nick, any comments? I agree with what Ann said. I mean, we're definitely two different agencies. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But uh, I think both agencies realize that we're partners in the same community and ultimately, uh, like Ann said, service the same people. We generally find ways to come to common grounds and work through any issues that arise. Nick, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about other partners. Um, Who else, uh, what other agencies or or people have to be involved to make this project a success? Well, the two other uh, agencies that aren't really on this uh, call right now is the Lane Council of Governments um, and then uh, the Technology Association of Oregon are kind of the two other players that are uh, helping make this project a uh, success. And what is the, the Lane Council of Governments? We're, we lie in Lane County, and so Lane County's Council of Government, it's a, the COG, it's called. It's a sort of a quasi-public agency that provides service to the local communities all across Lane County. Lane County is a really big, a geographically very large county. It extends all the way from the mountains and the Cascade Range to the coast. And so th- what they do is they provide a lot of intergovernmental service and as well as they'll provide uh, specialized services to the smaller governments who don't have the, the staff capacity to work on special projects. And so LCOG, and everyone calls them LCOG, they've been a key player for one of, they're one of the players for 20 years slowly adding an infrastructure that has expanded the regional telecommunications network. They've worked on, a, they, they've implemented grants. They, they had a stimulus grant that built a dark fiber across much of southwestern Oregon, extending well beyond Lane County. And so they have a lot of that technical expertise that individual agencies lack because we tend to be smaller agencies because we're sort of smaller communities. 
Well, and I'll bet the the coordination really helps for these kinds of networks. Um, let's let's dig into the the financing. How does the financing work for this project? This project is focused on downtown Eugene. We had to identify what that was because the funding sources have geographic components to it. Uh, we what we decided was our service area. About fifty percent of that is covered by two different urban renewal districts that are part of the city of Eugene. The, the city of Eugene City Council are the, are the officials of the urban renewal agencies. We had the downtown urban renewal district, which is an old district, was set to sunset. Last year, there was a lot of political advocacy by the community to amend the plan and get the urban renewal district, keep it alive for another few years with four specific projects. And one of those projects is to build the fiber network. So the primary revenue source is that urban renewal district, all local funds that is funding this. We have also, we're asking, as we build the network, individual property owners are asked to pay a small fee to connect to the network, a small fee of $2,000. That adds a little bit of money to the project. But from there, we still have a funding gap. We quite, can't quite get 100% built. We had pursued state funds and were not successful. But last summer, we began the process to apply for a grant from the Federal Economic Development Administration. And we found out just under two months ago that we have been awarded a grant and they're, they're awarding us $1.9 million. And so that fills the gap on the project. So when, uh, when property owners connect, is that something they have to pay in a lump sum then? Yeah. Yeah, we're asking for a lump sum payment. At the time, they're connected. And are there any individual homeowners in this area or is this entirely commercially focused? It's downtown. The project is an economic development project, but it's a downtown. And so there's all kinds of different uses. There's a movie theater. There's a, a regular public theater. There's there's a few apartment buildings. There's some affordable housing. And then there's a lot of office buildings as well. It goes to anybody who's willing to pay the $2,000, really. And so your connection comes into your building and whatever the use is, it doesn't matter. It, there are no single family <laughs> detached houses in the service area. And so it's all multi-floor apartment buildings that are in the area. The service area that we determine, eWeb has a, a web of uh, underground electric conduits in our downtown area. Electric system is forms an electric network system uh, down there. And when all the duct banks and uh, were put in back 50s or 40s, 50s, something like that, they actually had the foresight at that time to reserve or identify a conduit as a communications conduit. Of course, what that means has changed over time, um, but we're actually uh, installing this dark fiber network through existing infrastructure, pulling it through, pulling microduct uh, through existing conduit and actually even getting into the buildings through the electric uh, service conduit that actually enters the building. So this entire project serving 120, roughly 120 buildings, we're actually only going to disturb soil in just a few select areas. Uh, that's the, one of the main cost savings and benefits to this project. Well, and it's a reminder how important policy can make many, many decades of difference when you do it correctly. Um, Nick, can you tell me a little bit more about, um, I pay $2,000. I'm a business owner. Uh, what do I expect? What are my ongoing costs? Uh, what, how does it work? So basically a typical building would sign up on our website. And, uh, as we 
move through the project, you know, the first step is I actually go out to the building, just make sure nothing visually looks like there would be any red flags, like that we couldn't pull the microduct uh, through, as I mentioned, with the electric service um, to get it into the building. Once, once it gets into the building, we actually terminate the fiber, typically in the same room, wherever their electric equipment is. Um, from then, it's basically, it's up to the, uh, because it's an open access network, it's up to the individual ISPs that lease fiber from us to go around and basically sell their product or the tenant, the business owners can go to these ISPs and basically have them compete for their product. And then the, once they sign up with one of those ISPs, the ISPs actually lease fiber from us. So once the fiber is in the building, we really don't have a lot of interaction with the individual tenants. Is there a maintenance fee? We, yeah, we charge a lease fee to the ISPs, uh, but not, and then the ISPs charge whatever they charge to the individual businesses. Um, but we actually don't have any lead, uh, fees or anything for the buildings. The, any kind of maintenance fee is incorporated into the lease rate that eWeb has. Well, it, it, there's an interesting question as to how technologies change. I'm presuming that that most people there's an active um, they use an active technology, and um, you terminate the other fiber. I guess it, it goes wherever you want it to go. I mean, uh, different ISPs may take it to different places. All of the fiber for this project all goes back to a centralized location uh, to the Willamette Internet Exchange. They're actually in Elcog, so there's actually five or six ISPs that have a presence there in that data center, so they can serve them from there. But to your point, we could patch across, jump across to one of our other cables that then serve any part of Eugene. So yes, any business downtown could get to a different part of the city or even to other cities on other fiber. And one of the things I'm curious about is how services may evolve in the future. So you may have um, a business that wants to have multiple ISPs serving it over the same fiber. And that would just be something you'd have to work out at that Willamette uh, Internet Exchange, I'm guessing. Yeah. It, typically what we've, uh, what we've found is that the fiber going into a single building would have multiple ISPs leasing fiber to get into that building because you know, maybe ISP number one is serving tenant A and ISP number two is serving tenant B, but there's nothing that says, you know, one I, one tenant might, re, you know, reserve or get service from two different ISPs. So um, let's talk about the impacts as we wrap up. Um, what has, uh, what's happened in Eugene and as a result of having made these investments? Well, the project is still under construction. We're, we've only just gotten a I think 16 buildings are fully connected right now and we're moving forward on getting the rest of the 120 buildings or so connected. And you can see the impacts. There's one company where it's a, they own the whole building. And so it's a single tenant building. So the fiber connection just serves one client. It's a big software developer. They develop games for both the private market as well as they, they work with the, the department of defense building games that train soldiers they told us that if they got their fiber connection and they could take on a new project that would require them to hire 40 people, and on the promise of us getting it to them by a certain date, they started hiring those people. And so one, one business downtown increased the number of jobs by 40. 
And then in the other buildings, most of the buildings that are served are multi-tenant buildings. And those buildings that are served have some of the lowest vacancy rates in town. A lot of them have zero vacancy. And we're actually, I think we're going to start running out of office space downtown that we've had firms grow. We've had firms come just to locate here. Parking guy in the city came to talk to me to tell me that he's running out of parking spaces. And I, I said, that's a, it's a great problem to have, that we're actually <laughs> getting so busy that we're running out of space. And so, yeah, it's busier downtown. There's more stuff happening. There's more business in those office buildings. And they are, they're here because of the fiber, which then has a positive feedback loop. There's more restaurants. There's more other activity. And so it just keeps growing and growing and growing. But it wouldn't be happening without the fiber. Nick, I'm curious if, if the utility is planning um, you know, for decades ahead in terms of uh, when you're doing other water projects or um, other electric projects, are you putting in lots of extra conduit then as part of those investments? Yes and no. We, it's not a standard practice across the utility, but there's definitely, uh, I and other people definitely keep their, their eyes open for opportunities where we think there'll be good growth. We'll, we'll definitely look at investing in, if nothing else, just throwing a stick of conduit in the ground. And is, is there a reason that it's not a, a standard practice? Is it that um, you have so many different types of investments or that, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Sometimes I've heard that if you're trenching for a water main, you may have to make it a lot wider to incorporate fiber. And, and that's going to be a challenge that you may not want to do. Um, you know, what, what's the real world scenario there? Well, I think, I think the biggest reason that hasn't happened more or become a standard practice has just been a matter of it's not viewed as our core, our core business right now. So it's in the past, it's been a little forgotten about. We're trying to get that to change now. One of the nice things about utilities that have been around for you know many decades to 100 years is that uh, they've figured out how to... Um, do succeed over a long period of time. But unfortunately, in the short term, what that can often mean is resisting change and, and making sure that something's really important before just committing to it. So there's a, there's a double-edged sword there, I think, with um, these long-lived utilities. Yeah, definitely. One of the reasons that I think it's a partnership is that the city the city's the one who really wanted this to happen, and we're the ones paying for it. Well, and, and I would just assume that you're getting some phone calls at um, City Hall because I have yet to talk to anyone at City Hall that's not hearing from people on this. I take the calls from people who want to know, when's it coming to my neighborhood? <laughs> yep. I get, I get at least one a week. It's a pretty regular question. People are very excited about it. And it's, we'll see what happens after we're finished out downtown if we're able to extend it beyond. Right now, we're just focusing on getting the downtown done. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like people can ask the question to City Hall, but, you know, if they really want it in their neighborhood, they better be out there talking to their neighbors about it and making sure that it's a priority because City Council's got a lot of problems to deal with and they need to input on how to prioritize. Yeah, I think you're right. We've had a lot of political agitation for the downtown because because it was an economic development effort. The rest of it will be, a, I think it'll be more expensive. The payout, it'll be, the, the financing will be really different because it's lower density, not downtown. And so you get fewer customers per mile. 
Right. And we have seen a few miles. Actually, oddly enough, many of them are in the Pacific Northwest where uh, homeowners are basically putting their money where their desire is and they are finding ways of self-financing in uh, local districts. So who knows uh, what the future will hold. Um, but thank you very much, both uh, both Anne and Nick, for coming on to tell us more about uh, what's going on in Eugene. Well, thanks for having us, Chris. Thank you. That was Anne Fifield, Economic Development Planner from Eugene, and Nick Nevins, Engineering Technician from eWeb. They were talking with Christopher about their downtown dark fiber network project. Check out our stories on Eugene at muninetworks.org. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at muninetworks. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you again to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 263 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.